Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. The afternoon forecast is a hundred percent chance of coffee and guy talk. We're so glad the guys have assembled. Uh, past performance is no indicator of future results. I'll say that up front as well. <laughs> for sure. Yeah, for sure. The yeah. power no, that's good news. Is in place with the exception of 007, who's helping his uh, son with soccer today in I've Istanbul. Got, in Istanbul, I've got <laughs> <laughs> Pastor Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, and Dr. Peter Catherine. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks, Bill. Good to be with Hi, you, everybody. Bill. Yeah, want to let you all know you can send questions right now. As a matter of fact, 877-933-2484 is the text line. You can also email me at bill at myfaithradio.com if you'd rather send an email. Either way, we'd love to get your questions because we've got guys who talk right now ready to answer your questions. First one comes out of Romans chapter 8, that famous verse, uh, verses in 38 and 39. Paul says, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present or the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I want to live convinced that this is true, but I often have doubts. What can I do to turn this wonderful truth into my reality? We're a lot of pointing going on. Tom Harris, you go first. One of the things I see in that text, and it really hits me hard, is that knowing the truth and feeling the truth are not always the same thing. A lot of times, emotions get in the way. It's kind of like marriage. If you've been married a long time, sometimes you don't feel like you're married. But here's what I've discovered. The way to make it emotionally connected, the way to feel it inside, is to actually go do it. In other words, whatever the Lord is telling you to do in Scripture, when you go do it, and when you get fearful, like you know we're talking about here, what can separate us? That's when you, instead of letting it bother you, you go right to the Lord with it and say, I'm feeling fearful. I need to overcome this, Lord. I need to have your confidence. And I've learned that with forgiveness. I've learned that with patience with people, that the Lord usually puts me, at least in situations where I have to do it in order to learn it, because it's in my head, but it's not always in my heart, and it's not in my actions. Once it gets to my actions, then it becomes a much different thing. Yeah, I was thinking about the passage, and and it's happening in the context of the city of Rome to a group of Christians who are under severe persecution at that time. So if you're ever going to doubt something, I'm sure they were doubting heavily at that point. It even talks about what should separate, you know, will it be sword or persecution or famine? I mean, this is the early experience of believers was one of hardship and suffering and turmoil. And I think in those places, we do understandably doubt that God is for us. And we were, I was just in a class today and we were talking a little bit about the book of Revelation and that the real point of Revelation that John writes later in the biblical text is that um, stay strong in the midst of persecution because Jesus' kingdom is sovereign and he will uh, remain in the end. Yeah, and so God doesn't ever promise that our life is going to be easy, but he does promise that he will continue to hold us with his hand through this life. And so when we talk about being separated, 
from the love of God, that doesn't mean that while we're in the love of God that we're not going to experience hardship. We will, right. for sure. Uh, this world is broken and uh, there is suffering to be had. But here's what we can be convinced of, and this is why Paul is writing that, is that no matter what happens, all of those things, uh, you'll never be separated from the love of God. He'll pull you through at the end of the day. His kingdom is the only one that will remain. And if the question is, how do I believe Romans 8 and not doubt? Mm-hmm. I think um, the answer would be, I fight my doubts, and everybody's got doubts, so this this question is normal. Um, I fight my doubts with prayer, with Christian fellowship, with taking Holy Communion, with having uh, close-knit uh uh, relationships with other Christians, and that's how I fight my doubts. I think the reason we doubt Romans 8 is because of a worry. Mm-hmm. I get worried about something, well, God isn't going to take care of me. I saw a sign at a garage sale for a dollar that I should have bought, and the sign, it's one of these signs you hang on your wall. I should have. I should have held it up on TV. And the sign said, worry is a waste of the imagination. Worry is a waste of the imagination. And I just... Uh, that wasn't worth a buck? How cheap well, are you? I don't know. <laughs> Do you want to know how cheap I am? But, you know, the the, the truth is that I think 90% of the things I worry about never come true. So we yeah, need but to... I, does, don't you think the devil works overtime on our emotions? As You know, intellectually, we may say, I believe God's word. But emotionally, mm-hmm. he really goes to work on us. Mm-hmm. And that's where part of it is we need one another. I need, when I, I played football, I needed coaches. I needed other players. It was fun in the game when people are cheering. You know, I didn't go out there and play by myself. I think too many Christians try to play, if you can use that language, Christianity by themselves. Instead of understanding, this is where we need each other. One of the advantages Tom and I had working together is that we had some pretty honest talks about things that went on in our life, things we thought and whatever. And it built me up to where I could face things that otherwise I might have doubted in my heart. But honestly, and I thank you, Tom, because you helped me make steps that I wasn't going to take otherwise. Yeah, me too, Tom. And I, I would say to this this caller, it, whatever it is that's making you doubt Romans 8, sit down with a, uh, a trusted Christian, talk it out. Hmm. What about when your feelings are what they are, though? We want to be honoring of a person's place, a person's uh, yeah. uh, season in life, and they have their doubts, and obviously you guys have all given great answers. But what what happens when you feel a little tormented by your own feelings? Well, what it comes down to is just be honest about that. Be honest with others. Be honest with the Lord Jesus. Mm-hmm. One of the things I learned about Jesus a long time ago is that he already knows everything I'm thinking. <laughs> he knows everything I'm up against. My problem was I held it in. But the more I went to him and said, look, Lord, I have some real doubts about this. Look, Lord, I don't understand why you allow this to happen. This doesn't make any sense to me. What would begin to happen, though, over a period of time, and I'm not saying it happened right away, may have taken days or weeks, depending on what it was, maybe months, he would begin to bring into my path people, situations, opportunities, stories that I would never have paid attention to before that. But now under this context, it made sense to me. And that's what I think we need to do. We just need to be honest about it, be forward about it, and we all have different emotional levels, and that's okay. You know, work with that emotional level, and it's one sense a gift, another sense it can be a curse. But when you get with the right people, it can be a blessing. Yeah, I think doubt is one of those things that if we go the right direction with it, meaning if we go back to God with our doubts, I don't, I don't know that he's scared about that idea. I can think of the most transformative seasons of my own life have happened in long seasons of doubt. I remember 
doubting for a pretty extended season when I was in seminary that uh, maybe God was just made up as a wish fulfillment that he didn't actually exist, but we wanted him to exist. And he didn't. And I, and I searched high and low in heaven and earth and, and all the scholarship that I could find to try to disprove all of that. And God really took me on quite a journey related to some of those things over 18 months or so. Another season of doubt is when I was studying some things around world religion. I just thought, oh, we're just making this up according to where we grow up. I mean, these are some of the questions that we end up having. Those can be long seasons, but it was those seasons ahead of any other that really brought me into some some corners of the faith that I otherwise wouldn't have explored, that then over time, there was resolution of that doubt. But at the same time, the resolution of doubt is not our understanding. And I think that's the biggest right. thing that we can say. We try to resolve our doubt with greater understanding. The only resolution to doubt is to trust. And yeah. uh, and then that trust, um, what God promises to us in the scriptures is that we gift, we get the gift of assurance in the midst of our doubt. He doesn't necessarily do away with the doubt, but we get this assurance, uh, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine, oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. We get this assurance in the midst of the doubt of this life. And so I think for people that are looking to try to resolve their doubt through greater understanding, they'll always be left wanting. But but doubt does invite us into greater trust. And that's what I found in all of those categories of my own doubt. Agreed. Absolutely. Yeah. Nice answers, guys. Off to a good start. Here's 1 Peter 1, 3 in the ESV. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Mm. And the question is, would you please explain this verse, the again part? Born again. You know, you know that the, the phrase born again only appears three times in the New Testament. <clears throat> One is... Uh, John, where Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again of water and the Spirit. You've got that passage in Peter, where we're born again by the living Word of God. Is that what it said? By the living and abiding Word of God. And then in Peter also, we're born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. And I'm not preaching against praying the prayer and asking Jesus in your heart. I do that with people. But never once does it say the way you're born again is by praying the prayer and asking Jesus into your heart. We're born again by the water and the Spirit. I think that's a reference to baptism. We're born again through the living Word of God, the preaching and the Word of God, and through Christ's resurrection from the dead. When he rose from the dead, my sins were forgiven. I was born again. Well, it's, it's a process of waking up. It's a spiritual awakening. I can't produce a spiritual awakening within me. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. Only the Holy Spirit can convince me that Jesus is real, that he really, that scriptures are true that if I put this to work in my life, it'll actually happen. It is when that happens, the choices I have is either to do it or not to do it. So to be born again is not so much uh, what I'm doing. It's what the Spirit does to me. My question is, what do I do once that occurs, and how do I step out now to do either proclaim his name, live for him, help others, or whatever he's calling me to do? Yeah, I think you're hitting on some really important thoughts there too, Parrish. Just uh, it calls to mind the fact that Paul references us as you were once dead in your sins. So if we are dead in our sins, then we need to be born again. Otherwise, we're not actually right. alive, like coming to life, right? And and so I think the invitation here is is sin is often seen. Uh, in the physical space as like leprosy, right? Leprosy is one of those things that is, is seen as as a metaphor for sin. And when you're under the power of leprosy, you're for all intents and purposes, you might be alive, 
but you're for all intents and purposes dead. Leprosy will kill you and you can't get rid of it. You can't do away with it. You are under its power and there is nothing you can do. You need an outside rescuer. You need to be rescued from the power of leprosy in order to be brought back to life and restoration. And thus, that's what born again, I think, means to a large degree is that we are under the power of sin. We might be alive, but for all intents and purposes, we're dead. We cannot control sin. It will kill us. It will disfigure us. It will destroy us just like leprosy does. So to be born again is to invite a different power at work, the power of the Savior, to bring us back to life out of the leprosy of our spirit so that we can live by a different kind of power. These guys have all taken their brain juice today, so let (laughs) me know what questions you'd like them to answer. It is Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk. Let me know. 877-933-2484 is the text line. Again, I'll say it slowly. 877-933-2484. You know, so email me, bill at myfaithradio.com. Love to hear your questions. Got lots of time with these uh, fine gentlemen. We'll be right back. talk all the guys are here with the exception of 007 he's uh, busy on some expedition in kosovo i'm sure wouldn't you think that oh, i mean yeah. it's all well, secret at, so at we don't know. yeah yeah, yeah. But the, the guys are here uh with all fairly good posture i got to admit you guys are all sitting up straight today thank you for that <laughs> we're trying it's very respectful and uh our next question comes uh from the first uh, john uh, first chapter of first john where it says, God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. Okay, now I get light, like the sun, and right? That's light, but tell me what it means that God is light. It's got to be a different interpretation. It's just not... Well, yeah. light, well, light is a good image, you know, for us, you know, because it illuminates things. I mean, you go into a dark room, and you stumble your way through, or at least I do, now that I'm older and get out of bed at night. You know, you stumble because <laughs> you can't see what's there. But when the lights are on, I don't stumble. I would say you could take that word light and biblically be just about as accurate. You know, I'm pretty finicky on the Greek, but I wouldn't go quite so far. And put the word truth in there. God is truth. He gives us the truth. He shows us what's really going on. He shows us the way it really is and how we really need to think about it. And that's where the power comes from. Because you and I get deceived through life through falsehoods. And we lie to ourselves. When we have the truth, then we have the power to make the right choices. Yeah, it's such an interesting metaphor to use of of God, and I think you're so right about some of that uh, too, Parish. And John gives us a clue what he means in his gospel when he writes in in the Gospel of John before he writes First John, when he starts his gospel by saying, "In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were made through Him." And then it says, "And then in Him there was life." And this life was the light of all humankind. And so even that's a reference back to to day one in Genesis, where when God says, let there be light, there's certainly more going on there than just the need for physical light. Uh, It's his very life. And so to kind of pull that all together, the word life in the Greek language is the Greek word zoe. 
And it means the kind of life that God himself enjoys and gives throughout all of creation to those who are willing. And so when we talk about the light of God, we're talking about living within the truth or the life of God or the way God intends things to be. And, uh, and it's a beautiful invitation when we're walking in the light, as First John would then say later, or we're having fellowship with those in the light, we are simply walking in the kind of intention that God has made for us. And it's the kind of life that the Trinitarian life has uh, that then he imparts to his creation as well. And God is light and the darkness has not overcome right. it. Right. And, you know, what's coming to mind is I was with a Christian tour group in France. We were in this little real old chapel and the people on the trip were Christians one Christian woman had her husband there, who I think was raised Christian, but he had rejected it all. But he went with us on the trip. But I can remember when we were in this little chapel, we all started to sing Amazing Grace. Mm, and wow. I just watched this guy back out of the church. And I think that's what, what light does. When you are worshiping the Lord, when you're fellowshipping with him, you're filled with his light and Satan and demons and people that have rejected Christ just kind of back away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 You never try to shovel out darkness. You always just bring in light. There you go. Right. Yeah. It's really true. You can't turn on a darkness switch, no. right? No, you can't. <laughs> and so, yeah. You can't, you know, try to, you know, like a boat's filling up with water and you're trying to bail out the water. You can't bail out the darkness. I think yeah. you just bring in the light. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Love yeah. that. Boy, good comment, Bill. I was really smart. <laughs> Uh, write that down. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. There's a pamphlet or a brochure. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm not writing a book. Uh, no, right. not either. <laughs> no, no one would read it. Uh-huh. All right. Uh, Peter, you and I had an interesting discussion yesterday with Dr. Joanne Jung, and we had a great uh, time with her. She brought up a passage from Malachi 3.16. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. Yikes. So God's listening to every conversation we're having. Yeah, it was a little stunning yesterday when we kind of thought about that. It, it was, I think we even used the word convicting. It was just, very convicting. Just the idea that God is, that idea that in him we live and move and have our being, that the heavens is not some place just beyond Mars that we hope to get zapped to when we die, but the heavens is really the space in which God dwells. It's all around us and that we can have intimate listening fellowship with God. You guys, it was, it was a little staggering yesterday to think about it. Yeah, it is a powerful statement because I think we think if we can hold things inside, even the Lord doesn't really know, or we, we, we hang on to things. And that's human foolishness. We do that all the time, because if I don't tell what you guys are what's going on in my life, you just don't know. We can't do that with the Lord. And the other thing is, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is no longer out there. It's in you. Yeah. And what he means by that is the kingdom of God is the very presence of the Lord himself. And therefore, there's nothing you can think, nothing you can say, nothing you can do that he's not prepared for. He knows exactly what's going on. The best part of it is when we start getting honest with the Lord Jesus and just telling him the truth from the beginning. That's where real freedom is. And men will render account on the day of judgment for every idle word they uttered. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of what you experienced yesterday, that God knows everything. Mm. Now, and you know what's crazy? I'm, no, I'm no less convicted after that. <laughs> no, but, but here's what's convicting to me. Why is it I care so much what people think of me? Yeah. And not that much what God thinks of me. I mean, if I if I made a joke with you and I thought it was wrong and I hurt you, I, it would bother me and I'd have to you know, ask your forgiveness and stuff. You don't but, have the time to. <laughs> <laughs> but, but why do why do I care so much what people think of me when God is the one who's going to judge me? Come on, you know it's just dumb, but it's a battle. Hmm. People pleasing. Well, it's the it's the visualization. We can see people. You know, we don't see the Lord in that sense. Yeah. However, 
That's why I think it's important that two or three come together in his name, because it's in the presence of other Christians we get the closest glimpse hey, Grant, of the reality of Jesus yeah. in which, our day-to-day life. Which is why people who say, well, I don't go to church, but I'm a Christian, I'm thinking, what? I know. You can't give God one hour a week. Are you a Christian if you won't fellowship? I know people said that about your TV show. They did. Yes. They did? Yeah, that, that, that's their church. They all, all I they need and is I, And I, I get that, and I tell them, I am not your church. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10 do not, for, right. do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Right. I mean, if people refuse to go to church, I'm I'm not God, but I wonder if they're truly saved. Well, right. and I can sympathize with some of the concerns of the next generation where they don't necessarily want to participate in the institutional version of the church as it has been for these last maybe 30, 50, 70 years in our country. They feel like, mm, you know, it's had a bit of hypocrisy or there's some things that have just really burned me a lot. I, I hear that story a mm-hmm. lot among mm-hmm. my young people. Um, But just because they may not be interested in gathering in that form of institution, that doesn't mean they shouldn't be gathering. The the church is the people of God following Jesus, shining his light in the world through the power of the Spirit. And how you do that together in your life together may take the form of a building with a steeple and a sign and a website, but it doesn't have to in order for it to be the church. The point of those passages were assembling together. When When somebody says to me, I don't believe in organized religion, I think... What do you want? Unorganized religion? <laughs> Which is what they want. They want their own religion that they invent themselves. It's very comfortable. Yeah. I, organized religion can be bad or good, but give me the body of Christ like you just said. We yeah, have sure. to have that. Yeah, I think it, I think we can fairly critique the way we've organized or some of the power structures or, like, like I said, the hypocrisy or the moral failures, those sorts of things. But that doesn't mean we throw out the baby with the bathwater no. and recognize that it's fellowship yep. around the communion table with other believers and yep. that there's teaching and that there is the breaking of bread, all of those things that the scripture invites us to. That can take a lot of different forms, but the idea you can forsake that uh, you know, if Satan can isolate us, it's trouble. Hebrews at that point. ten, do not yeah. forsake the assembly. It's interesting. Sure. Jen and I watched a movie last night called, and I'll have to explain this: Magic Mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you better explain that one, Parrish. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Please explain. It's, it's a long story, but you know, it's basically that there are things in nature that medicine is now discovering can really help people. Did I get out of that one? Okay, Bill. Mm-hmm. Not okay, really. not really. Okay, <laughs> time for a point, break. The point was the guy who ran the was the head speaker in it talked about the negativism of Christianity that drove him to look at something else. I think Peter, you and I should sit down. Quite honestly, there are so many positive things we've yes. done, but the media never talks about that. Yep. We hardly talk about it ourselves. But who started the hospitals? Who started orphanages? You know, who started a welfare system? Schools and schools. We go right down the list over and over. But this generation now, millennials, have no concept of that. And all they see is the negative. We've got to help them see some of the positives, too. Indeed. I like that. We would love your questions. Uh, In a minute or so, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, I'll be joined by Pastor Tom Brock and Dr. Peter Kachner. (laughs) (laughs) No! Uh, there we go. Tom, this nice is North, knowing you guys. This, this is housed at Northwestern University of Northwestern. This is a school founded by Billy Graham. Yes. I love it. Yeah, magic mushrooms definitely come to the heart. I got to tell you. Why do I have back sweat right now? Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, so uh, let us know what your questions are. We'd love to hear from you. We've got some great questions coming in, and we're going to address them after the break. The number is 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. And also you can email me, bill at myfaithradio.com. You know, we've only got very little of summer left, and ending August 31st is our Summer Reading Bundle Giveaway. And you're going to get some incredibly great reads uh, with some great Faith Radio 
reading bundles which are going to feature novels and nonfiction from assorted Christian authors that have been featured right here on Faith Radio. We're giving away one bundle each week, so we're, I think we're down to one bundle. So if you want to get in on the last bundle, go to MyFaithRadio.com. You can sign up there. After a short break, we'll be right back with Guide Talk or Guys That Talk. Here they are, uh, guys uh, talk or guys who talk. You can uh, ask them questions. They will answer them as quickly as you uh, send them over, 877-933-2484. My next question comes from my wingman, Terry. He said, every once in a while, I like to read a classic ghost story. As a Christian, is it wrong to seek out a, a book or a movie that's intended to frighten you on a supernatural level? Well... I love Hitchcock stuff. That can be pretty scary. Now, I, I will say this, though. Years ago, I, I saw the movie Alien and then Alien 2. And, and <laughs> You're missing I, the point. It, was, no, no. It was, it was the scariest movie I'd ever seen. Yeah. And then about a week later, I woke up in the middle of the night screaming. And I thought to myself, I shouldn't be doing this to myself. And, I, I mean, I saw part of The Exorcist. I had to, to walk away from it. So I think I don't, I don't. It just depends. I mean, uh, for instance, watching, <laughs> you know, uh, North by Northwest or some of these Hitchcock things. I think that stuff is fine, but the demonic, horrible stuff. I think we should stay away from. Yeah, I'm not going to walk into it because I have worked with so many people that have been involved in the demonic and the occult, and it is interesting because I usually ask them, "How did you get into this in the first place?" And it usually, in their childhood, something hurt them really bad, a parent or somebody else. And then they were offered power. And the power came through oftentimes a film. It came through a book. It came through something. And they thought they were getting that power so they could control their environment around them until it finally turned on them and actually tried to control and destroy them. So my attitude is, as Christians, we got plenty of good stuff to read. I just stay away from it. Yeah, I don't, are you guys uh, equally intrigued as I am by sort of the supernatural realm, though? I mean, there's part of me well, that sure. is is like, hmm, I'd kind of like to know a little bit more about that realm. But sure. I do, I think we do have to be careful about how we explore that. The realm is biblical for yeah. sure, right? I mean, the, the Bible is a terribly supernatural book if we if we read it through not as a series of commands to obey, but as a story of the realm of the of the supernatural with the natural working together and and or apart from so many ways. I, I think. One of the authors I've enjoyed recently is uh, Dr. Michael Heiser has been writing a lot of books on the supernatural, so angels and demons and the unseen realm. I think he's one of the more responsible theologians I know that's been writing on this topic. So, I, I mean, to intentionally scare ourselves, I'm with you guys. I, I don't know the answer to that question, but I don't like waking up in the middle of the night after having been terribly <laughs> mm-hmm. afraid by those things. And I, I think I'd be careful that they might inform my understanding of the unseen realm in some ways that might lead me astray too. So there's there's probably a lot of different views on that, but that's mm-hmm. where I'd be coming from. Horror movies don't scare me. What scares me are commercials for toenail fungus. 
Ooh. Well, especially when I look down at my toes. <laughs> yeah. Where the commercials, they're lifting up that toenail like of the, the oh. hood of a Pontiac. And there's a horse, you know. You can't even That's cut horrifying. those. Yeah, you can't even cut those toenails. <laughs> Whoa. Okay. Let's see here. Let's move on. Please discuss our blessed hope. Hmm. Nice transition. Oh, great. Yeah. Well, I don't mean to be controversial. But the blessed hope is the second coming of Christ, not the pre-tribulation rapture. And, you know, there's a there's a track that I've seen where the blessed hope is that Christians will be raptured seven years before Christ returns. That's never been our blessed hope. Our blessed hope is the return of Christ. Whether you believe you're, you're here on earth until that happens, which I do, or you believe you vanish seven years before it happens. But the blessed hope is the return of Christ. Yeah, it's Jesus himself. Yeah. We look forward to seeing him face to face, and we will. And he is going to be there for us. And so absolutely. I, I had a funeral this morning, and they talked about the woman who died. She was 77, wonderful lady, real servant. Uh, but she had been drifting in and out. And the very last thing on her face is that I, I she raised her hands and smiled at the last moment. And I am convinced that when Jesus says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come and take you to be with me. I'm convinced the Lord came and took her to be with him. He is our blessed hope. Nicely done. All right. Um, my mother is a seven-day Adventist, and my father is not, nor am I. But my father does strongly believe that the Sabbath is Saturday, and he does. He uh, also questions eating pork. I've thrown some stuff on him about why we can eat whatever we want or why we gather on Sunday rather than Saturday. Is there anything you guys can share on this? I think the Saturday part of it certainly was part of the early church practice. They would have gathered on Saturdays. And in fact, some of the very early church gatherings about which you can read in in church history, they happened primarily on Saturday evenings, and they were centered around the celebration in the communion table. And uh, the reason why they got moved to Sunday morning, this is sort of weird parts of history, but the... there started to get to be so much competition about who was bringing the best food, and actually some of the post-meal uh, celebration was getting a bit out of control that they moved it to Sunday morning. So the original Sabbath was definitely Saturday. Now, whether you have to, to celebrate it on Saturday is, is a different question, but that's at least from a historical standpoint what happened and why it got shifted to Sunday morning. There, there are two—I've been told, and I think it's true, there are two kinds of Seventh-day Adventists. There are the legalistic Seventh-day Adventists yes. where if you worship on Sunday, you've received the mark of the beast, you're not saved, yeah. etc. There are the evangelical Seventh-day Adventists that believe pretty much like we do. If you want to worship on Saturday, fine. But Paul could not have written what he wrote in Romans 12, I think, where one man holds one day above another. Everybody, another man holds all the days like, well, let everybody be convinced in their own mind. He doesn't insist, it better be Saturday. Right. It's and, and and right. I think, too, the other big error of the Seventh-day Adventists, they don't believe in an eternal hell. They believe in what's called annihilationism, that if you reject Christ, you just get wiped out and you don't go to hell. So um, there you go. And I, you have you know, evidence in the New Testament, them worshiping on the first day of the week when Christ rose from the dead, which mm-hmm. was a, would have been a huge deal for Jews to start worshiping on Sunday. For sure. So that's kind of been often a uh, traditional defense of the resurrection of Christ that something pretty big had to happen on the first day of the week, Sunday, to get them to change their worship day. Well, remember the Pharisees were really upset with Jesus' disciples because they were picking wheat and eating it on the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. You know, why do they do this on the Sabbath? And Jesus basically said to them, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath isn't about the day, you know, Friday sundown until Saturday sundown. It's about the person you worship. 
And I, part of my relatives were Seventh-day Adventists, and, and I dearly loved them. But in, in their case, they were highly legalistic, and if I could have seen the love of Jesus in them, it would have been fun. I didn't see the love of Jesus. I saw the rules. Here are the rules. you got to don't eat this, don't eat that, don't do this. And it's really a shame because we've missed the point. If you make the day the point, you've missed the point. Mm-hmm. And quite honestly, if we're not worshiping the Lord every day, we got a problem on our hands. Yeah, and you said something really interesting there too, Parrish, that actually Sabbath starts with sundown. Right. Right. And that's something I, th- I, I tend to think of the day starting with the morning, but actually the Jewish day started with the evening and started with sundown. And that was, it was sundown to sundown. And there's some things even in some ancient Jewish teaching that the Sabbath starts with rest, that you, you had to into your time with God starting with rest. And it's a pretty compelling and intriguing theology when you get into the history of the Sabbath and how it was practiced along those lines. But that's not familiar to my tradition to start with sundown and start with rest uh, as entering into the day. Right. And, and the point of the Sabbath was mm-hmm. to spend time with the Lord. Of course, yeah. You know, and that's what so often we're missing when we talk about Sabbath, whether it's Saturday or Sunday. A lot of people go to church on Sunday and don't spend time with the Lord. Right. And and people argue, well, in the Old Testament, it was on Saturday, and how dare you change it to Sunday? Well, it's the only one of the Ten Commandments that is not reiterated in the New Testament. Never do our New Testament Christians commanded to observe a Saturday Sabbath. No. Well, it's and Hebrews not, talks about Jesus being our Sabbath right, now, right? So right, then we yeah. enter into a different kind yep, of rest yep. at this so point. Again, so again, right. pe- people, I like to worship on Saturday night uh, a, a lot, but that uh, I I prefer worshiping, well, in one way, I prefer worshiping on Sunday because that evidence of the resurrection. Right. I like that too. All right, gentlemen, what do you think First Peter 3, 6, why do you think First Peter 3, 6 uses Sarah as an example, she was the one who gave Abraham the idea of Hagar. She laughed at God. I can only imagine her reaction when Abraham told her about his trip to offer Isaac. She just doesn't seem like the model submissive woman. What do you think? Are they referring to something else about her? Go ahead, Tom. <laughs> hey, you know what, you, I, what I like to say to my married friends, the, the husbands that are kind of being knuckleheads, I like to quote what God said to Abraham in the book of Genesis. Abraham, listen to thy wife. <laughs> and, yes, yeah, she got some things wrong, but I think she got... By the way, it never says that Abraham told her, I'm going to go sacrifice Isaac. <laughs> I don't think he told her that one. It never says either way. But, um, you know, she had faith and had mistakes, just like Abraham had some pretty big blunders. But she was, she, you know, th- that passage about that Sarah... Uh, feared Abraham and called him Lord, Master. Isn't it interesting that the heroes of the Bible are not any of the people of the Bible? It's always the Lord himself. He's the one that brought them out of Egypt. Mm. He's the one who rescued them. He's the one that rose from the dead. But you look at the people. And King David, who wants him as a king? Mm -hmm. A murderer, an adulterer. Who wants Solomon? You know, who built... The last word about Solomon in the scriptures is he was building high places to his foreign wives for child sacrifice. I mean, come on, this is not a good image. The point of the Bible is not the people of the Bible. Although I don't think there's anything about child sacrifice. That was to Molech. Yeah, but... The God of child sacrifice. anyway. Yeah. (laughs) Um, We'll duke it out after the show. (laughs) But the the point is simple. The emphasis is on the reality of people who, in the midst of hearing the Lord's call, did some right things and did some wrong things. And it sure reminds me of me. Amen. Here's a follow up to the ghost story question is the story of Saul seeking the medium of Endor to conjure up the spirit of Samuel in 1 Samuel 28, one of the first ghost type stories ever recorded. (laughs) (laughs) Sure seems to be. It kind of is, yeah. 
Well, and I just, I would love to crawl into Saul's worldview that he figured there was somebody out there capable of doing just this kind of work. Again, these are not, the the, the worldview of Scripture, if we let it, is often really different than our it current is. worldview. It certainly is. And, you well, know, that, that story about um, the witch at Endor conjuring up Saul's spirit, some people think, well, It wasn't really Saul's spirit, excuse me, conjuring up Samuel's spirit. It really wasn't Samuel's spirit. It was the the witch doing her thing as a a, uh, seance lady. But no, read the text. It really does look like that really was Samuel that God allowed to come back once from the dead to warn Saul, you're going to die. You know, and so anyway. But here's a good point about Saul, and I like it very much. Saul... Quit trusting in the Lord long before that. Mm-hmm. Saul did his own thing. Saul did not observe what the Lord had told him to do. And therefore, the scriptures say the Lord no longer answered his prayers. Mm-hmm. Well, suddenly he's alone. So he's trying to search out, where can I get some power from? So he goes to the witch of Endor mm-hmm. and really gets surprised by, by Samuel showing up in that sense. And- but the point is, we've got to be careful of that, too. That it is when the Lord disciplines us or the Lord calls us to do something or the Lord says something in Scripture about forgiving your enemies, it's not to make it tough on us. It's to keep us in contact with him. Yeah. And two difficult questions about Saul is it says the Lord was sorry that he made Saul king of Israel. And some people say, well, if God knows everything from the beginning, you know, why did he? And the other hard one is now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord mm-hmm. tormented him. Yeah. It's kind of like God controls the demons. That's that's uh, uh, Job chapters 1, 2, and 3. Yeah, Satan does this horrible stuff to Job, but he has to go before the throne to get permission first. I don't think we were used to... <laughs> Satan is on a leash. A yeah, I, know. I think I might stay quiet, actually, at this point. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, it's... Satan is on a leash, yeah. and he can only do as much as God allows him to do. Yeah. Well, and I just, again, I, I'll go back to what I quoted earlier, and I know you've had Michael Heiser on the show before, but I have never read such good, mind-blowing material about what's going on in the heavenly court that I think is entirely faithful to Scripture. So if people, it's not an easy read all the time, but it, is, it has it's, been blowing us away, and yeah, my, my wife and I have been reading it, and it's just been blowing us away in yeah. terms of finally making sense of some of these stories. It's yeah, really have ever, interesting. Have you ever read This Present Darkness? Yes. Yeah, so yeah, Friday, back what a book. Oh. Well, back at that time, I thought there was a demon everywhere then, at that point. <laughs> yeah, but it's on my powerful... car and in my shed and yeah. everywhere. Yeah. But I think the you problem is... Well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> maybe that explained the demon. <laughs> I think the yeah. problem in Christianity is that we've created a Sunday school Jesus. That's the shepherd, the lamb, right. wonderful. We don't understand that there is also a vengeful Jesus. There is a vengeful God. And we need to be careful about that. When I went to Santone Prison, not as a... <laughs> Remember there <laughs> when you did your concert which, there? Yeah, when, you and Johnny Cash did a concert. When I when I went there to, to preach one time, I'm getting ready. It's Christmas time. I'm getting ready to go up here. 250 guys in all the orange outfits, right? And then and some of them scared me to death. I'm on my way up, and I felt this inner impression: the Lord saying, "Tell them I love them. Tell them don't mess with me." And I I got up there and I said, "Guys, I think I had a word from the Lord for you." And they all leaned forward. Jesus loves you. Don't mess with me. We had 45 minutes of line mm. after that, after the service guys wanted to talk to me about how they'd been messing with the Lord and what could they do to get rid of it. Wow. I mean, the Lord moved in that situation like I've never seen. Mm. That's, I love that story. I, I've done, uh, I've been in about 80 prisons myself, so I've got some, I have some very fun. <laughs> <laughs> Tell stuff. us one, Bill. Well, I would always, you know, start by looking at and finding the biggest human being in the room. <laughs> 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 and I would, I would say to the guards, 
if I go after him, you hold me back. <laughs> <laughs> and you would see the guys go from arms crossed to yeah. uh, arms uncrossed, shoulders mm. dropped. Because you made a joke. Because this guy's an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, mean, yeah. You know, because I, I just gave them permission to go. Yeah. 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 Love that. Cool. That's Love great. that. All right, we're going to take a little break. we got some great questions coming in. I will get to them after the uh, short intermission. i got the uh, guys here, guys who talk, Pastors Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, and Dr. Peter Kapsner. Let me know what your questions are, 877-933-2484. Be right back. Guide Talk, or Guys Who Talk, Pastors Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, and Dr. Peter Kapsner is the squad today, as usual. The Bible says, cast, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I honestly don't know how to do that, even though I've been in church all my life. I have a lot of anxiety. How do I cast my anxiety on Jesus? Can I tell you a story? Please. I had a sinful week years ago, I mean many years ago, and I had a dream that I was being chased by this little animal that barked real loud. It was ugly, it barked real loud, but it was little, and it chased me, and I ch- I chase it chases me up a tree. I'm up in the tree shivering, and this thing at the bottom of the tree is going, ar, 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 and I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> I'm never coming down, and then... This Christian comes along, points his finger at the animal and says, in the name of Jesus, go. And it goes, ar, 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 ran away. And I came down, I said to the Christian, but what if it comes back? And he said, just start praising the Lord. It can't stand that. And I woke up. And I think Mm -hmm. the answer to the question that you just got asked is twofold. Mm -hmm. Number one, sometimes Tom Brock is so neurotic and up in his own tree that he needs another Christian to get him down. Mm -hmm. So if I'm into anxiety or worry... I need another Christian to talk that out with. And the second thing I learned from that is the power of praise. When we're going through anxiety, just start praising the Lord, singing to him if you want, or just thanking him, or open the book of Psalms and read a psalm out loud. But the power of praise to expel uh, anxiety is powerful. Yeah, I was just, and when you're talking about the the dream of the dog, mine is not anywhere near as exciting, but I do remember a dream I had at one point in university, when I was uh, in undergrad university, and I was just stewing in anxiety. I mean, just fear all around me, and I uh, I had a dream that night that I was trying to climb a mountain, and I got towards the top of the mountain, and every time I tried to claw up the next part of the mountain, I kept falling back, I kept falling back, I kept falling back, and I could never get to the top of the mountain, and and it felt like one of those spiritual dreams, right? The, the, uh, the rare dreams that you might have that, that are spiritual in origin. And, and every time I kept trying to claw up and falling back, finally I shouted out, I can't do it. Mm-hmm. And then I was on the top of the mountain and I woke up. Huh. And I, I've used that for other times in my life when I've been swimming in anxiety that usually the reason why I'm swimming in anxiety is I've got so much fear about what is to come that I'm trying to control and I really can't actually at the end of the day control it. Mm-hmm. And so one, it's not the, but one of the pathways I think that can help to cast our anxiety is just simply say, man, I am trying to do everything here and I am whatever it is. 
I just can't do it. And once you go into that place of I can't, there's some, at least for me, I will say that it starts to, to calm some of those waters. Mm-hmm. Early in my ministry, I had a person come to me and say just exactly what this passage is talking about. I have these anxieties, you know, and, and I, I want to give them the Lord. I don't know how. I said, well, tell me what you do. Well, I, I pray. Great. You know, what else do you do? Well, I read scripture. Great. I said, what else? He goes, well, that's it. I said, well, who do you tell about these things? Well, I don't tell anybody. I said, there's part of the problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, You're sure. isolating yourself. The other thing is, I said, when you pray and you, you renounce this or you cast it, do you actually talk out loud to Jesus? Well, no, I hadn't thought about that. I said, start verbalizing it out loud. Jesus, I am fearful. I'm carrying this burden. I'm going to give it over to you. It's kind of like a warning to the devil on the one hand of where your anxiety is going, but it's also acknowledging who the source of healing is for that. Mm -hmm. In that particular individual's case, it took a year, but substantially the anxiety was gone after living with it for nearly 40 years of his life. Hmm. Because the devil does not know your thoughts, does he? No. He can plan them. And devil put Plant it him, in, yeah. yeah, but whether he can't can read know it, them. he's not omniscient, but yeah. God is. Yeah. Can you explain the fear of God? And the question continues with, should I be afraid of committing murder or adultery or something? Of course, the answer to that would be yes, but can you explain the fear of God? Yeah, fear of God is, is defying the Lord himself, is not acknowledging who the Lord is, as revealed in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, especially Jesus, who's the Savior, and trying to manage this life without him. Because when you don't fear the Lord in that sense, you will make continual decisions that will be wrong, that won't go in the direction he wants, and you're going to wind up in deep trouble to do that. So I encourage people, yeah, Jesus loves you. There's great grace. I, I don't want you to run around fearful in that sense. But don't be stupid about the Lord. He will not be fooled, and he will not be toyed with. And like I told the prisoners, don't mess with him. Mm-hmm. And in Luke chapter 12, the disciples were fearing the Pharisees. And Jesus said, do not fear men. All they can do is kill you. I will tell you whom to fear. Fear him, God, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So are we supposed to fear God because he can send us to hell? Yep. Uh, Luke chapter 12. Now, I I don't live with that. I know Christ has paid my my debt, so I'm forgiven, I'm saved. Because in the same chapter... Uh, Jesus says in one place in that chapter, fear God, he can send you to hell. Uh, uh, earlier, or is it later in that chapter, he says, don't fear, and uh, meaning God, because you are of more value than many sparrows. So I think there's a sense in which we fear God. If I'm a Christian, if I'm following God, fear not, you're of more value than many sparrows. If I start rejecting Christ, turning away from him, living in penitent sin, I should fear God. Well, the Jesus we're going to meet on the day of judgment, we get to choose now which Jesus we're going to meet. Are we going to meet the Savior who died for us and rose from the dead and stands in place for us for our own judgment? Or are we going to meet the Jesus who has the sharp double-edged sword mm-hmm. coming out of his mouth? Because both exist. It's the same person. It's who you choose now, who you're going to serve, that makes all the difference in the universe. Yeah, I mean, right, filled with grace and truth both, right? Yep. And if you, get, yep. if you get mistaken on one side or the other is where you kind of miss the mark on that. He's filled with grace and truth. Yep. Yep. All right. Um Here's a question I've sort of saved for the end, and I'm going to ask you, Peter, to respond to it because oh. of the who else is in the studio that would like to respond to it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm trying to put some restraints on these guys. Got it. Yeah. Uh, Tom and Tom being uh, retired Lutheran pastors. Mm-hmm. Right. right. And I think 
Well, who made that noise? I did. That was you, yeah, Tom Parrish? Yeah, wow. it's the retired part that bothers me. Oh, don't worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are young. All right. So, Peter, I think you had a discussion this morning. I mean, you've already been on a, a Carmen show this morning. Right. If I remember correctly. And there, the question is, I heard there's a new ELCA individual that was voted in by all the bishops in the Lutheran Church. But it sounds like she's... Uh, very progressive and redefining biblical teaching to fit today's lifestyles. Yeah, I think that. What does that, that mean? Yeah, that absolutely fits what is going on there. I know one of the, one of the phrases that might characterize what her ministry and and what she cares about moving forward is uh, she has made the the comment that we need to care much more about people's well being than we do about the teachings of the church. And and I think among the many problems with that comment is that as if the teachings of the church, if rightly representative of God's kingdom won't bring us the well-being that we're looking for. And so uh, I think where she's coming from, and and, uh, Brock, you and I were talking a little bit at the break too, just about some of the comments she's made that um, she she is advocating for embracing ways of life that have historically been inconsistent with God's kingdom. And we certainly have our work to do to understand why things in the LGBT community might be, uh, and, and in fact are inconsistent with the kingdom. We have to understand why that would be to help bear witness into that. But uh, in this particular denomination, she's going to be leading the way for the embrace of those things because in her mind, she cares more about the perception of what well-being is in that community versus the teachings of the church. And it's going to be something to watch moving forward mm, for sure. Mm, mm, no, mm, that's right, Tom Brock. Mm, Just quiet. I tried to get to close to 58 well, with I know. that answer. <laughs> I appreciate it. Wow, we're out of time. Yeah. All right. Thank you, gentlemen, uh, for another uh, great time together. And I appreciate your fellowship and your friendship always. Coming up uh, next, uh, Matthew Barrett's going to join me. He's got a book called None Greater. Is God the most perfect supreme being, infinite and incomprehensible? Then certain perfect making attributes must be true of him. We're going to learn about there is none greater. Matthew Barrett's my guest in the next hour. But, gentlemen, thank you so much for being here. Always great. Thank you, Bill. And we'll take a short break and be right back with lots more. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.